0: This is episode 474 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. As in a time of Joel, the church today needs to come together and call for a sacred assembly, or a time of national repentance and spiritual renewal. A sacred assembly is a time where everyone who is called by the name of the Lord drops everything and comes together for a season of fasting, praying, repentance, and revival. But before there can be a national move of the Spirit in our land— there has to be a move of the Spirit in our individual lives. Hence, individual revival must come before national revival. So let's begin the process of calling a sacred assembly by focusing on our own personal brokenness and repentance as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. I had uh, every intention today, I even told Karen about it, of looking at the situations we're facing right now, especially in our nation, and putting it in a chronological timeline to show you where we are in the prophetic history. That's not going to happen today. Uh, we will have to do that at another time because yesterday as I was praying about this and putting the final touches on the PowerPoint, God really spoke to me about something that we need to do. And... Um, That's what we're going to be doing today. I don't need to tell you about the condition of our nation or the condition of the church today. You're well aware of that. Uh, As you know, a Supreme Court justice just passed away, and now all of a sudden the news media is talking about the replacement and how that's going to happen. If you remember the Kavanaugh thing, it was horrific. It divided our nation, and I was asking the Lord why this happened at the time that it did. Because if you understand the sovereignty of God, the Bible says that every one of our days are numbered before we live the very first one. We don't know what day that is, but from God's perspective, prior to that day, we're pretty much invincible. But on that day that he knows that our life ends on earth, no matter how we're feeling in the morning, we're pretty much dead already. Do you understand that? He sees it all. So uh, Justice Ginsburg died whenever God wanted her to. Could have happened six months ago, could have happened six months in the future, but it happened at this particular point in time. And if you look at prophetic history and if you look at what's going on in our nation and and God's macro view of all of this, just stepping away from the chessboard and seeing how these pieces are being put together with Netanyahu and what's going on in Israel and Iran and some of the um, non-neighboring Muslim countries, what's happening with Turkey right now, it is encouraging if you have a tight relationship with the Lord. It is frightening if you have an arm's-length relationship with the Lord. The, the church today is fractured and splintered. There are so many today that claim to be Christians, especially if you belong to some of the groups that I belong to, these pastor groups. They claim to be Christians that have anything other than biblical orthodox view of life. Um, this, you know, our, our football teams have to have some sort of political organization uh, stamped on their jerseys, and, and no longer kneel or no longer stand for the national anthem. And if you're the one or two person who goes against that, you get canceled. You're irrelevant. You, you, you have no longer a place in our society right now. And if you're a student of history especially Nazi Germany, like I have been for many, many years. This is exactly what happened to the Jews, exactly what happened to them. Then they had to start wearing stars. And they had to be seen differently wherever they went. And, and that's pretty much what's happening now. There's, a, there's an underlying tenet that's going on. And the church, including me and including us, is just rocking on like nothing's happening at all, we're so tied up with our lives and schooling our kids and building our businesses and making money and, and watching the movies that we want and, and buying whatever we want that we're oblivious to the fact that there's an iceberg ahead and you and I have been given the power by the Holy Spirit that lives within us to do something about it. Greatest need in our nation right now is a need for revival, a need for renewal, and a need for a recommitment to him. You know, I don't know, being a former accountant, I don't know any other way to view things than numerically. I see things visually like a movie. Sometimes I'll be talking to Karen, and I'll be talking about Lindsay, and I'll be pointing this way. And she'll look and go, what's over there? Well, that's, that's where Lindsay lives, over that way. And I just, I see things that way. I see things number-wise. That's why when I think about our spiritual lives, my own spiritual life, I, I scale it on a scale from 1 to 10. Not that everybody has to reach a certain 10 of somebody else's standard, but your standard, your 10. Closest you've ever been to the Lord. Well, that, that was obviously a 10. And hopefully that was a 10 when you first got saved, and then all of a sudden you would clip that 10 to an 11 or 12, which became your new 10, and it just keeps growing in the sanctification life. And, well, where are we now? Well, we're in eight, six, five, three, which means we're not even where we once were at a time when we have to be. I mean, I can't emphasize, I don't know what else to do to warn you about what's happening right now. I, um, I went to Home Depot yesterday and I went to the Home Depot at Rock Hill and had no idea it was that far. And you walk into the Home Depot and everybody's wearing masks. Except me. Can't tell their expression. You just see their eyes. There's a distrust everywhere. It's like we're depersonalized now, that we're no longer humans. Most The most expressive, the first most expressive area of our face is our mouth. We smile, we frown, we look perplexed and and we've got all that stuff covered up so all they can see is our eyes. And I see these big guys with beards with this little stripped mask on, their beards coming out the bottom. I mean, everybody is wearing a mask. Everybody has to follow the rules. It's almost like it's its like the mark of the mask that we talked about a, a couple uh, a couple weeks ago. And And there's this feeling, if you get out in the public, there's this feeling of, Untrust, or this underlying uneasiness. And part of that is because you can't see the expressions on people's faces. You can't see a mother who's struggling with her kids and give her a smile. And she kind of smiles back and goes, you know, I, I've been there. And you give her a word of encouragement because you have this mask over your face. And if you're like me with tinnitus, you can't even hear what they're saying because I have to read lips most of the time to understand what people are saying. And, and it's, it's this strangeness going on. And from a political standpoint, all of us know this is ridiculous, but we have to follow the rules, and Biden comes out and flip-flops about whether we're going to have a national mask mandate. Is this not insane? There's, there's different reasons for this. It's not just the virus. Something else going on, using it to clamp down on liberties of churches and freedom of speech and our Attorney General Barr, basically said that other than slavery, this is the biggest reduction in personal freedom we've ever had as a nation. And we just smile and rock on, knowing it's crazy and knowing it's wrong. And and there's some underlying reason for all of this. So what do we do? I mean, what do we do? We come to church and we pretty much do the same things we've always done. We listen to some songs and hopefully you're singing those. Hopefully you're worshiping. Hopefully, if you're not singing, you at least got your eyes closed or you're meditating on the words. And, and it's like we lay out an opportunity for worship best we know how. And so we lay it out in the, 21st century Western church culture acceptable way of doing that. We're not giving everybody on knees, laying on knee, you know, on your knees and stuff. So we so we lay it out and we hope people worship during that time. And then we hear a message, and the message pretty much deals with head knowledge. We're we're teaching something, we're learning something. We take a shot and a dab at prayer now and then. We we I have a communion time, and we try to make that as spiritual as we can. And then most times, and again, I'm painting with a broad brush here, if this doesn't apply to you, my apologies. It applies to me. Most of the times we walk out of here a little smarter, biblically, maybe a little more convicted emotionally, but pretty much the same people we were before we came in. We're a bad father. Before we came in, we're still a bad father. If we're not a spiritual leader in the home, I'm talking to men now, we're pretty much still not a spiritual leader at home. But nobody cares because nobody presses the issue and nobody, it's not like a, a measurement we have to have. It's just, it's just church. It's just what we do. In Jewish times, they would call what they call a sacred assembly. And they would call all the people together and they would have this time of prayer like we would call a revival meeting And when they did that, they found that the Lord was upset with them because of the hypocrisy of just going through the motions. In Isaiah chapter 6, we have this amazing account where Isaiah sees the Lord. And if you and I saw the Lord, it would probably have a profound impact in our life. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Then he describes these heavenly beings that were around here. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried out to another, probably through all history, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is full of his glory, except in my life, except in America except in your life, except in our homes, except in our workplaces, except with our TV viewing, except with our friends, except with the decisions that we make. he may. The world may be full of His glory, but we many times haven't allowed that glory to change our life. And the holy, 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 as these seraphim are calling out, the number one attribute of God, the same thing John saw in Revelation chapter 4, is the one thing we run from as Christians, holiness. I don't want to be holy because if I'm holy, I have to make choices and those choices are going to affect me. and I'm not going to be able to do the things that I want to do. Yes, that's why we're bought with a price. And the post of the door was shaken and the voice of him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah recognized in the presence of a holy God who he was. And he says, woe in me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the thong, with thongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. And then there's this call, The call was not made to Isaiah. It doesn't say that God said, hey, Isaiah, I have a specific task for you. It was a call that was made across all humanity. And I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send and who will go for us? It's the same call offered us today. And then, of course, you've heard this sermon so many times when we're talking about missionaries or being called into Christian service or something of that nature. Then I said, here I am, send me. And then we stop. We don't talk about Isaiah anymore. We don't really look at that anymore. That's as far as it goes, like the Keith Green song. It ends right there. Ah, here I am, send me. To do what? And then you read the next couple verses. Go and tell these people. What? That you're hypocritical. That you're hearing the message and you're not getting it. Jesus even quoted these passages. You keep on hearing, but you don't understand. And you keep on seeing, but you do not perceive. But well, Lord, that's, an, that's, a, that's a not a popular message. I know. It gets worse. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes and their ears heavy and shut their eyes. Why? lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Well, how long, Lord? How long before that happens? How long before we see this revival taking place? What's in store? And if you'll read the next verses, it is nothing but judgment. Judgment. Babylon had a... Religion, where they would take children and they would kill them. Uh, The Jews, of course, were guilty of offering their children to Moloch, which was a huge bronze statue with hands outheld like this, where they would heat it up until it was as hot as an eye on the oven and lay an infant child on those hands and just watch it fry. And we say God should judge that nation. There were... Fertility cults at that time where there were houses of prostitution where men would go and be with a, a, a temple prostitute and somehow they're worshiping God. There was narcissism with a capital N on steroids that were everywhere and we look at all these ancient cultures, the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians and, and we say God judge them, you're right to judge them and he did Babylonians lasted a century and a half, Medes and Persians a little less than that. Rome lasted seven centuries. And God judged every nation. And you and I would stand up and applaud. And we are as guilty, if not more guilty, than they are. We murder children in the womb, the safest place for a child. And we don't care anymore. It's just what it is. I can't do anything about it, and so we'll just kind of rock on and We hear politicians making it litmus test in order to to be elected, and and we don't care. And then we wonder why our nation is ripe for judgment and why things are happening like they are. But wait a second. We go to church, and and we're tithing, and we're singing, and we're doing all the things that we should do. And so were they back then. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 1. They were having their solemn assemblies. They were having their groups where they all got together and, and dedicated themselves to the Lord. And here's what he said about their solemn assemblies. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Why are you even doing this, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand? You who trample my court. Bring no more futile or vain or empty or useless sacrifices. Your incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and the Sabbaths and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meetings your new moons, and your appointed feast, my soul hates. Why? I mean, we're, going, we're doing what you said. We've got our own lives, and when we come to these sacred assemblies, we're, we're taking our money, and we're buying the right kind of sacrifices, and we're, we're doing everything that you told us to do, and yet you are disgusted with what we're doing. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear, because your hands are full of blood. Lord, what do we do? It's not about coming to church. It's not about sitting down and going through your devotional and checking it off like some sort of bucket list item. It's not about putting on the Christian face when we get together with Christians and then throwing it off in the workplace out there because we find that being a Christian in the workplace affects us financially. It's not about that at all. The person who should know your commitment to Christ the most is your spouse. And are you the same at home as you are when you're around Christian friends or at church or your children? Do they see you praying? Do they see you studying God's word? Or do, do you have the kind of faith that they want to emulate? What are we to do? Verse 16. Wash yourself and make yourself clean. This is the sacrifice God's looking for. Put away the evil of your doings before my eyes. How? It's really simple. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good because that's not something that comes naturally. Seek justice or judge properly. Stand up for those people who are oppressed. Rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Well, if I do that, I won't be popular anymore. People won't like my post on Facebook. It will cause turmoil in my life. Yes, it will. Light in darkness. Pilgrims and sojourners in this world, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. We've huddled together too long. There's a world out there that you and I have the only answer to. And I can picture in my mind as I'm reading this, God speaking these words and the people being stunned that's too much. I, I, I can't do that. that. You're asking too much. Verse eighteen. Okay, come. Then let us reason together. Let's have a, a, a debate, an argument. Let's let's have let's let me convict you or convince you of this. Says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If notice this, if you are willing. And obedient, that's the requirement, as an individual and as a nation. If you are willing and obedient, the promise, you will eat of the good of the land. I will bless you. But if you refuse and rebel, a condition, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You'll turn to Joel chapter 2. Joel was facing, Joel's culture was facing really tough times. In Joel's time, the enemies of Israel were like locusts. And there actually were locusts that were coming and devouring the land. It seems like pestilence was falling. Everything was falling apart for them. No matter how hard they worked, it seemed like they kept taking a couple steps behind. Nothing seemed to work for them. They didn't know what to do. And so Joel said that what we need to do is we need to get together and set everything aside and call a sacred assembly or a solemn assembly. Chapter 2 begins with blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm, let everybody know this is happening. Chapter 5 or verse 15 says the same thing. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast. But prior to that, we find uh, verse number 12. And verse number 12, there's this call to repentance. And here's what Joel says He says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. Our nation is heading into a situation where it is prophesied that we must decrease in order for the United States of Europe to increase. Because at some point in time, we'll no longer be a factor to be able to guarantee Israel's security. And we'll talk about in a couple weeks why that may happen. It may just be the moral decline in our nation right now. It may be our reserve currency status. There's so many ways that things like this could happen. Our nation is divided. There are people talking about a new civil war coming. They're talking right now, if you read it on the news, that it doesn't really matter who gets elected, whether it's Biden or Trump, we're going to burn this place down. Pretty soon the military will have to step in and stop that. And I mean, it's it's amazing what's happening. And like in the time of Rome, when Nero decided to burn Rome, you have to have a scapegoat. You have to find someone to blame, and that person will be conservative probably Christian individuals like you and I. It's coming. So what do we do? You know, we can't really prevent the judgment that God is bringing on America. But we have children to raise. And, you know, they're going to be raised in a different society than it is right now. And more than ever, we're going to need this kind of faith to persevere during tough times, just like they've had that kind of faith in Korea and in China and other countries that haven't had the freedoms that we have, that we've squandered so much. I mean, what we're about to go through is not new to believers over the history of the church. It's just new to selfish, opulent, narcissistic us. What do we do? You turn to me with all your heart. What does that look like with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning? There's a deep emotional reaction when you turn to God with all your heart. When you become a 10 or a 12 or a 15, when you say nothing in my life really matters because it's all transitory anyway. The money that we have, the houses that we have, we're all going to leave them behind. Turn to me with all your heart. The fasting and weeping, with mourning. Rent your hearts and not your garments. This is, of course, this, this type of religious action that the Lord hates. Everybody would rent their garment. God, I'm in such anguish over my sin, I'll just tear my garment. A little Jewish custom here, so we would all rip our shirts, go home and buy another shirt, but it meant nothing. To us. It was just something that we did because everybody else was doing it. So, rend your hearts and not your garments and return to the Lord your God. Have we gone too far? Will he accept us? Does he still love us? Yeah. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. This is the exact phrase in Exodus 34 that God described himself to Moses. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is abounding in compassion. He is slow or long or drawn out to anger, which means a flared nostril and of great kindness. And he relents or he shows pity and comfort from bringing judgment and doing harm. Who knows if he will relent and leave a blessing behind, a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. Who knows if this is the last days for us as a culture. Who knows if things are really going to get totally dark. Who knows if maybe there's not one more forestalling of God's judgment because of the prayers of his saint left in his compassion pocket who knows, maybe, maybe he'll leave a blessing behind rather than judgment, so much so that out of that blessing we'll be able to offer him a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. What I want to do today is I want us to call a sacred assembly. I want us to spend the rest of our time praying out and crying out to God for mercy and grace and commitment and whatever we need to. But I know that's not for everyone in here. I know that some of you aren't even interested in that. Some of you, it's like, oh, gosh, this is one of these sermons where I feel convicted again. I understand that. Before we have a sacred assembly, we have to have a recommitment to him. We have to recommit our lives to him. We need to understand who he is and who we are. And all the stuff that takes precedent over him is foolishness. Paul called it dung compared to knowing the surpassing greatness of God. He promises us to feed us, to take care of our daily needs, to give us shelter. And yet we spend, as men, we spend our entire lives trying to accumulate more and more and more and more. Why? Because our self-worth and our identity is tied up in that. We have to have the best. We have to choose our family and our children and our friends and our neighbors and ourselves over everything. And hence, we live in the Laodicean church age. And hence, if you're a 10 in here, excuse me, I'm I'm not speaking to you. But most of us in here aren't 10s. We were But we don't really care anymore. I mean, that was back then. That was that was way long ago. But I feel comfortable living in the lukewarmness right now because I get my satisfaction out of my checking account or my attaboys or what I want to do with my own time rather than hearing him say, well done, good and faithful servant. But when our number is called, when we've lived our last day on earth, none of that matters at all. None of it. We need to recommit our lives to him. I'm going to ask you to do that today. I'm going to read something. Galen said that this has made a, helped her a lot with some situations she's going through, and it's January 1st of My Upmost for His Highest. Do you read My Upmost for His Highest? Do you know what My utmost means? It's the best you are. It's the best you are, not what's left over that you spend the best on you, but it's your very best for his highest. Everything that I am, the best that I am, I offer to him. My utmost for his highest. And this would be a great object of the commitment that we need to make and of the cost, thank you for this, and of the cost of that commitment. Let me read it to you. My utmost for his highest. The verse is Philippians 1.20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. It doesn't matter. My utmost for his highest. My eager desire and hope being that I never feel ashamed. We shall all feel very much ashamed if we do not yield to Jesus to the point he has asked us to yield to him, which is everything. Paul says, my determination is to be my utmost for his highest. To get there is a question of will, not of debate nor of reason, but of surrender of will, an absolute an irrevocable surrender on that point. Absolutely, irrevocably surrendering myself to him. And overweening considerations for ourselves is the thing that keeps us from that decision. Though we put it that we are considering others. When we consider what our commitment to him will cost others if we obey the call of Jesus, we tell God he does not know what our obedience means. I may lose my job. I may lose my house. If God calls me on the mission field, I'll have to uproot my kids from their friends. And so I can't do any of that because of what it's going to cost others. When we consider what it will cost others if we obey the call of Jesus, we tell God he doesn't know what our obedience means. Keep to the point. He does know. Shut out every other consideration and keep yourself before God for this one thing only, my utmost or his highest. I am determined to be absolutely and entirely for him and him alone. Whether that means life or death, no matter. Paul is determined that nothing shall deter him from doing exactly what God wants. God's order has to work up a crisis in our life, Which we have now, because we will not heed to a gentler way. He brings us to a place where he asks us to be our utmost for him, and we begin to debate. Then he produces a providential crisis where we have to decide for or against, and from that point the great divide begins. If the crisis has come to you on any line, surrender your will to him absolutely and irrevocably. You can wait until the government or your friends and neighbors, our culture, our people who hate you, that are your neighbors, or your own family that will turn against you, bring that crisis to you. Or you can make that decision now right now so here's what i'm going to ask and i'm going to ask you first of all please please do not succumb to peer pressure i'm going to pray and i'm going to ask those in here that would like to rededicate their life to the lord and recommit themselves with reckless abandon to him once and for all to the best of your ability without reservation to stand And if somebody's standing beside you and you feel funny, please don't stand unless you make that commitment. Because when we begin to pray at the end of this, those that are standing are the ones that I'm calling to a solemn assembly. Those are the ones that we can expect to to be the spiritual leaders of their home, to live quiet and chaste lives, to put Christ first in everything. If you're not ready, if you don't want If you just can't wait to get out of here, please don't make the mistake like the Lord's Supper of taking it in an unworthy manner, of standing just for peer pressure and then having your wife or your husband look at you expecting you to be different only to dash their hopes when you get home. We need a time of radical commitment. Would you agree? We have talked about it. We have preached on it. We have taught about it. We know about it, what the Holy Spirit can and cannot do. It is now time to act on it. First and foremost, Christ all in everything. Amen? Considering the cost of what's truly involved. And then I'm going to pray. And from those of you who would like to make that commitment... As a testimony to everybody else in here, I'm going to ask you to stand. Father, would you speak to hearts right now? I know in my own life, I've just pretended like tomorrow's going to be like today, which was like yesterday, but Lord, you're bringing us to a point where you're coming soon, and we know what's going to happen. We know how this turns out. We know You see the handwriting on the wall, and yet we still just walk on like everything is guaranteed and assured. And Lord, what you desire from us is a deep commitment to you, an absolute surrender to you, to be the spiritual leaders in our home, to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, to depart from evil and do good, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and to not waste another day in fruitless activities, but to live like you truly are the King. Father, would you speak to those today? Would you give us the courage to stand for you? And I'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm asking if you would. Those of you who have rededicated your life today and want it to be a testimony to those that are here, to your own family, and those that are around you, would you stand? Amen. Let me pray. Father, I know that the people that are standing right now will face trials and tribulation; that they will have thoughts in their mind of doubts and fears Lord, they will have maybe members in their own family, members in their own household who will try to shame them for their commitment to you. But Lord, would you let us stand firm as beacons of light to lead our families to to stand when others may be falling. And Father, would you do mighty things in us to bring revival in our own lives and in our families' lives and those people that you place in our sphere of influence. And Lord, would you do that for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. For those of you that stood, again, I appreciate those who didn't, your honesty. For those of you that stood, I want to take the last 15 minutes together and call a sacred assembly. It says this in verse 15. It says, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, and I'm asking you this week if you'll spend some time fasting day, uh, a meal, whatever. But don't just pine over how hungry you are. Instead, spend that time in prayer. And every time that you feel this hunger pain, remember why you're doing this and how good and gracious God is. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly. Gather the people, sanctify, set apart, make holy the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. In other words, there's a sense of urgency here and everybody's involved. Let the priest who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, this is the prayer, and do not give your heritage to reproach. That the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? Where is their God? Just a moment, I'm going to ask you to pray. And I'm going to ask the men who stood first, that they would be leaders of their family and they would pray. Uh, They can pray for our nation. You can pray for our church. You can pray for other people that you know we can pray for a national or personal repentance. You can pray against our personal and corporate church apathy. You can pray about standing in the gap for others. There are some who have children who are straying from the faith. We're going to see this more and more with the great apostasy coming. Maybe you could pray for your prodigal. You can pray for other people who are struggling, people who... People who need someone to intercede for God for them. and So I'm going to ask that we just begin a time of prayer. I would like the men to pray first and after a few men have prayed, which is something for some reason men find uncomfortable doing. I'll ask all the women to pray and everybody else would pray and would we'll simply just have a time of prayer. You can pray silently if you want. I would love pre- people to uh, to pray publicly so that we can Join with you in prayer. And just spend our time together doing that. Amen? Who would like to be first?